The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is a little bit different. It's about, it's a true story of a, a young woman born in the 20th century, but but raised in the 19th century. And the name of the book is Born Yesterday by Rachel William Smith, PhD. And let me tell you a little bit about Rachel, who's joining us from the East Coast in Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Rachel Williams is an educator, writer, and speaker who's really passionate about making a positive change in the lives of others. She has a unique experience in her own life. She serves as the Dean of the School of Journalism and Communication at Southern Adventist University, and she holds degrees in communication with a PhD in educational leadership, EDD, and English with an MA, a master's degree, and language arts education as a BS. And she has this book that was really kind of unique that I thought would we could talk about polarity, we could talk about differences and different lifestyles, and, and really how you come out of a lifestyle that's very, very different and culturally different to live in our society. Um, in her book, Born Yesterday, Dr. Williams shares her incredible and profoundly moving story of growing up in extreme circumstances, and she teaches us that we all can transform, and she also teaches us a lot about, you know, acceptance and non-acceptance and polarity, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And her life has been full of unusual twists and contradictions, and we're going to talk about those as well. And so uh, without further ado, I do want to mention her website as well. It is, first of all, you can, we link to it on our website on privacypiracy.org, but it, we link to her website, Rachel Williams, with an S, smith.com. So there we go. And then our privacypiracy.org, where you can see a picture of her book, um, her picture and her bio, and as I said, we link. So Rachel, thank you for joining us this morning. Mari, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk first about a little bit about your background and, and what can you tell us a little bit about your life story? I know you have a whole book about it, but you know, tell us a little bit about that that evolution that you've gone through, which is amazing. Sure, love to do that. Um, my story 
started out almost normal, um, up to the age of about five. Uh, my father was a military man, and my parents were lived in a suburban neighborhood. My brothers went to school. We went to church, all of those normal things. And then my parents began to get into more and more ideas about how they should live alternate lifestyle that was all based on a, a religious um, beliefs that were kind of going away from mainstream. So when I was about five or six, they decided to take my brothers out of school and not put me into school I was supposed to start, and, and so they decided not to do that. And they also made some changes to our diet and dress. We had always been vegetarian, but then we became vegan, So, um, which was a good thing, actually. Um, but we added to it dress and a long, wearing a long dress down to the ankles and then a bonnet, um, wearing that every day. It wasn't a costume that I wore for play. It was every day um, apparel, and my mom was making my clothes. And, and we ended up moving off the grid out into 50 acres um, in Tennessee on an isolated hilltop. Um, there was just a rutted uh, road that was hard to access. In fact, it would um, there was a little bridge that you could drive over, and it would wash out sometimes when the stream flooded. And um, it was intentionally away from society and away from um, the beaten path. And there was no access to electricity, to running water, to everyday um, conveniences of our lives in the 20th century and the 21st century. And so we took on a lifestyle that was really uh, a throwback to the 1800s. So we were using kerosene lamps and we were using the outhouses and we um, canned our food. You know, I mean, we preserved our food through canning it. We used wood stoves. We cooled our food in the stream. <laughs> um, you know, when we needed, we didn't have a refrigerator is what I'm mentioning. Um, Everything was, and we grew our own food. Uh, we handled all of our medical problems at at home, including some very serious ones. Mm. And we were very, very, um, was what is the word, um, indoctrinated in terms of what to believe. So there was a lot, a lot of teaching and training on on what to believe and how to defend our faith. Um, and all of that was spawned by the idea that the world was going to come to an end within probably not more than five to seven years. And so it, we needed to pull away from, quote, unquote, the world and kind of live this purest, separate life in preparation for this end-of-the-world event. You know, we see TV shows like that where, where these people are preparing for the end of the world. I mean, I've seen them. I don't watch them all the time, but I've seen them. I don't know if you've seen them. They do the same yeah. kind of thing. And then, of course, okay. when, I when I visited Pennsylvania, the Amish people and how they live their lives is it's very similar. And yeah. so um, did you have kids to play with or... Were, you were so isolated, right? It was just a family? Yeah. yeah, so you could almost think um, a one-family group, like an Amish group, but one family, so it wasn't in a community. And um, no, so there were not children my age to play with. Sometimes people would come up there, find their way up to our retreat. There was one other family that lived about, when I say family, that's actually overrated. There was a, 
a man who lived up the road and his wife would be there during the summers, spring, summer, and fall, and then she would be gone during the winter because she couldn't deal with that kind of lifestyle without you heat. Know, yeah, heat. no heat. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and by the way, we lived in a very old house um, that I like to say was well, um, well heated in the summer and well air-conditioned in the winter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> a very old house, um, you know, I, so... There was it was a harsh lifestyle along that line, uh, but people would come up sometimes and learn from us how we lived, uh, because someone who lives like this it's a novelty, and right. there's always those who are curious and want to know more, know more, and are contemplating doing that kind of thing for themselves. Right. So we would allow them to come. We had we uh, actually started out living in buses ourselves, and then we we kept a couple of buses for people to come and stay in, like a, a school bus that's been transformed into a place a, a living space. And so they would stay there, but it was weeks or at the most a few months. And typically they did not have children. Actually, I don't recall anyone who had children my, you know, our age. There was one lady with her two children that stayed with us for a couple of years, but her children were, were uh, much younger than I was. So I didn't have anyone who was my age to talk to and get to know. Um, I didn't know what, you know, this went on until I was 16, nearly 17. I didn't mm. know what other teenagers thought. I didn't, you know, of course, dating is out of the question. There was nobody right. to date. Right. You know, I, I <laughs> go ahead. I remember wondering what in the world do teenagers think about? Because I right. did not know. Yeah. Right, right. And so um, what was it that that made your parents think that this was the end of the world and they had to do this? This was part of, of the religious upbringing that they had or? What was yeah. that? So th- yeah, they started with an original faith context that did teach that, you know, the world was going to come to an end, you know, soon at some point, but soon as never was never concretized into any particular date. But and my parents really began as they studied more and more of the the verses, the text, the references, the sources that they were drawn to. They, my father in particular, he was really into timelines and prophecies in from the Bible, mm. and so he developed. He used to keep charts and graphs, <laughs> a lot of displays of end of the world events. And I remember being pretty scared about that because it was very, you know, he would make it as graphic as possible to help us to understand. And I understand what he was trying to do, um, but he was really into that timeline. So that's what pushed it. I mean, he could he could say that this is what's going to happen when, mm-hmm. you know, and he had dates and charts, not the actual day that the world would come to an end, but he was pretty sure that he was within, you know, a couple of years of when it would end. And he knew that it was going to be within five, at the most seven years. And so he wanted us you know, taken out of society and to be ready for when that all happened. And of course, ready to be a survivalist. Yeah. 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 And be ready for the earth made new. Right. So So that must have been, that must have been pretty scary for, for you and your brothers, right? It was. I remember learning I'd never be a teenager. And, and there's people in different faith contexts that are that may learn to believe that. But ours went beyond just an ideology. It became a lifestyle. You know, it wasn't just something we believed. It was something that changed our entire lives. So I didn't go to school. I didn't, you know, yeah. I didn't, we didn't go to church except on rare, these rare occasions to go, quote, unquote, evangelize. And that was all about proselyting people to get them to see how we saw, you right. know, so I, I did not, 
I, you know, I, I wasn't just an ideology that was affecting my life. It was actual lifestyle. I mean, I had a bonnet on my head every day. Yeah. Even when we would go to the store, I'm dressed in a bonnet and a long dress, homemade clothes. It's obvious that I am not, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. people are not going to walk up to me and say, you know, hi or whatever and start talking to me because, first of all, my parents are there kind of guarding and then, right. you know, sheltering me. And, and obviously, I'm different. You can't hide that fact. Yeah. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> it was, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. And, and for you to be able to like, you know, understand it now from an adult perspective, what are your thoughts about that? Like, <laughs> I mean, is there, is there anger? Is there sadness? Uh, you know, emotionally, what do you think about that? What that your parents did that now that you have such a different lifestyle? Yeah, um, you know, I having become a parent myself, there's several things that I recognize. First of all, n- my parents had the best intentions in the world, okay? Yeah. And like all parents, they make mistakes. Now, my parents were more unusual in the mistakes they made than most parents, right? And I cannot deny that there was an element of extremism, you know, a serious element in ex- of extremism in what they did. However, I also understand their intention. They were trying to deal with and relate to the world as they understood the world was and right. it was going to be. Right. And so they were doing what they were doing out of their best intention to to help save and rescue us. Right. And so I can appreciate it. I don't have anger and hostility. I think one of the most important things that we can do for one another is to understand the world in which the other lives through their eyes. And if right. you see it through their eyes, then you can have understanding and even compassion on the choices that a person may make as, as opposed to saying, you know, they did this to me and disadvantaged me. Um, one more thought about that, if I may add it, and that is that I think that everyone is born into this world with some situation, circumstance, reality that limits them in some way and holds sure. them back. So you could spend your time being bitter about your limitations or you can use those things as avenues or special ways to grow and understand the world and help someone else that might not have been possible if you didn't have that. Right, right. Each of us have something that that we come in to learn, right, and to grow, yeah. and that's our springboard for whatever it is that we need to do. That's so, right. wh- you know, uh, so you were 16. Tell us then what happened, what changed. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was, was going on 16, and my father abruptly decided to leave. I had no, when I say I had no clue he was going to do this, I mean, I had no clue. Like literally the day came when some people had come and it convinced him uh, that he and my older brother should go to Houston, Texas and, and build houses. So this was around 1981 or 1980. It was around, around about 1981 or 1982. And they convinced him there's a, you know, real housing boom. You can come down here I will teach you how to do the, you know, laboring, uh, you know, working as a laborer to help build houses, earn some money, and come back to the hill. And that's how we referred to where we lived, as the hill. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty important because we we were very poor. So sometimes struggling for daily bread was yeah. literally a struggle. There right. were times we had to go out and, and, and rummage for food. Mm. <laughs> when I say rummage, I mean in the woods. Yeah. I don't mean through trash cans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. 
So, yeah. And we were vegetarians, so it wasn't a matter of killing animals, but we had to find things that we could eat, right. including the inside of tree bark. So and especially, a, especially in the winter when... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of challenges with that. And so I didn't know until about 15 minutes before he got in the car, he was taking my older brother with him, and there was a kind of caravan of cars because there was a couple of families that had decided to do this. And he got in the car, got ready to get in the car, and he took me aside and told me that he wanted to talk to me for a moment. And he handed me an envelope, and inside of it was clippings of his hair. My father had brilliant red hair, like copper red hair. And he told me to keep this because this is all you'll ever have of me. And that is when I first discovered that he was planning to leave. Oh my and within 15 minutes, less than that, he was gone. He walked out and what happened, and he took my older brother with him. So then soon, within a few months, my younger brother ended up following because he was restless and, you know, unhappy up there on the hill. He was already by himself, and now his brother's gone too. Hmm. So he wanted to go. And when it was just, then it left just my mother and I. It was impossible to do all of the tasks that had to be done for daily living with just two women, you know? I know we say we can do everything, but we can't, you know, as women, but we can't go chop down trees and cut up logs and and um, plant the fields and harvest and cook oh, every day. Yeah. And, you know, just multiply that distinct, no electricity, no modern conveniences, and then, so it's all manual, and that's what we have to do. There's just no way we could do it, and so we had to leave. And that's the short version of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, and so what, you know, your dad probably realized that, you know, the the end of the world didn't come, so I better go and make some money by building these houses. Wow. Well, I think what happened was, I really think what happened was that he realized that his plan, because this had already coasted beyond, like I said, I think five years, I don't even think he quite thought seven, but seven was the long version. And by now, life had coasted beyond that. And I think he realized that the world wasn't coming to an end, but his kids were getting grown. My older brother was my older oldest brother was 19, and the other one was 18. Yeah. And here I was 16, and he had no Plan B. He believed so completely in what he believed that when Plan A didn't happen, there was uh, nothing else. Yeah. So I, I think he just decided to go and you know abandon ship and find life for himself. And he told me that he believed we would make it somehow. Oh my goodness. I bet your mother wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> well, it was shocking to her. She didn't know either. She went to go give him a goodbye kiss, and he turned his head away. And that was the first indication something was wrong. Mm. And then he leaned his head out the car as the car pulled, pulled away, and he unleashed a volley of words that I didn't understand because I hadn't heard those words before. And that's when she first discovered that her husband was not coming back. Mm. It was it was pretty shocking. <laughs> So yeah. so how did you make your transition then, you know, when, when you left? Where did you guys go? So we ended up going all the way. We were, this was Tennessee, um, the southern central part of Tennessee, kind of in the um, – there were still hills, but not, you know. Not anyway, quite the mountains. Right, exactly. So Pulaski, Tennessee, outside that area is where we generally were. So we ended up going 
by Greyhound bus across country all the way to Washington State. And there was a lady there who, who had been writing us because she also produced a newsletter. She had similar beliefs, but she had a normal lifestyle. Right. And so she was going to come visit us that summer. And my mom wrote her and said, instead of coming to visit us, would you send us two one-way tickets for us to come to you? Because we have nowhere to go. Aww. So she did that. And that's where we ended up um, near Tacoma, Washington. Um, after a three-day trip on the bus, and it was my first exposure to really being in a world that I wasn't prepared to live in. Wow. <laughs> Culture shock, yeah. right? Yeah. Since you're hey, like five years old. To, <laughs> yeah. When she asked me to mow her lawn, you know, I, I mean, it was very scary because I'm not used to being around, you know, in a suburban neighborhood and people, you know, looking out from their houses or whatever. So it was very exposing, very frightening. And plus and a, yeah, I, a machine that you had never, everything was... You know, exactly. natural, no machines. Oh my! Well, we used yeah. um, we used like a push mower from time to time. Usually, I used a swing blade. <laughs> the, that, oh, wow. I would cut the lawn. At, it wasn't lawn, but I would cut down the the grass when it would grow up high in front of the house. And I usually did that with a swing blade. But at the most, a push mower. And then here's I'm using this electric mower. It's extremely loud. Yeah. It's already kind of frightening. And then I look up and I saw a car coming, and I just bolted. <laughs> I, just I read bolted. that. I, <laughs> yeah, that you were so you were hiding. Yeah. Yeah, oh I ran here behind the house. I mean, it was just frightening to me. So. Wow. Yeah, a lot of adjustment had to go. So when I went to school, that was the thing. I knew I wanted to go to school to answer your question. Yeah, did your, wait, let me ask you something. Did your parents homeschool you? I mean, did they have books? Did they homeschool you when you were, uh, when you were living out there? So they did at least teach you to read and do some other things? Yes. In fact, my mother, uh, um, she, because the Amish were, were uh, similar, Mennonites had a similar lifestyle. Right. She found a published the Mennonite publishing house, okay. and she ordered some of the books that they used to educate their children. Okay. And that's what she used to teach me. It's just that it was really hard for me to learn like math and science. So I did well with reading and and and, um, and writing, but math and science I just couldn't seem to learn past about third grade. So mm. I was stuck, yeah. deeply stuck. When I finally went to this little tiny school, I ended up in Canada, in a little tiny school in in British Columbia, Canada, and um, it was it was also a school for people that were. Um, kind of extra ultra in a way you know uh-huh. so most people sent their kids there at at that time they'd send their kids there because maybe they were in trouble or having extra problems or mom or dad didn't want them to be too wild so they would send them there so it was a little tiny school and you know it was a work study program and but for me it was a major culture shock to be around <laughs> 30 kids my age I mean wow. that was overwhelming (laughs) oh my gosh I just can't even imagine (laughs) oh dear yeah well let's talk about enjoying the conversations and I don't know how to add to the conversations because I don't know what they're talking about right (laughs) yes ma'am yeah oh my goodness so you have I mean you have really that was such a culture shock for you that was more than even going from one country to another you're going within your own country and trying to figure (laughs) out what is this all about yeah so I know that you have some thoughts about and perspectives about polarized thinking because you experienced it, and then of course you came to uh, see another way of polarized thinking. Tell us about that. Sure. 
Yeah, some of the thoughts I've thought reflected on what happened, how we became increasingly polarized from the world yeah. and how that can happen with other people. And I think it it can start for many people what it did for us, having strongly held beliefs that maybe weren't fully explored and um and and held up to the test of, of critical thought. So, But they were strong beliefs, and sometimes we don't always examine our beliefs. We just hold on to it, and then you find other people who think the way you do, and you start reading their literature, listening to what they have to say, and your thought I, uh, uh, your your thought concentration in that area continues to grow and expand, and you're not necessarily listening to the things that would give you other perspectives over time. So you begin to shift away from you know, wherever more people are to where you're drawing off to yourself. So you think poles, you know, um, north and south poles, opposites, they don't meet. But one factor that really can play into this greatly is fear. And fear, you know, in our case, fear of the end of the world. So fear becomes a serious factor in how we're acting and it speeds up this polarization that can occur. And then you begin to you begin avoiding people. So that's what happened. We start moving away from people and avoiding contact, avoiding communication. And then you begin to build up defenses against them. So these people, so people who don't believe like you, which was most of everybody else, (laughs) you know, becomes the other. You know, right, right. The enemy almost. The enemy, and then you it moves from there where you're beginning to set up ways of testing and measuring, determining whether they're in or out, whether they're one of us or something else. So. Over time, the thinking becomes even more black and white and simplistic, and it's us versus them, simple alternatives. And you have these labels, these simple ways of testing everything else. So they don't believe in wearing a bonnet that is full brim. They believe in a little cap on the back of their head. They're out. You know, they can be just as sincere as you, but now they've become the other. And then it can move to some other things like creating consequences for violating those rules, which increases the fear, like these rules of you don't deal with them, you don't talk to them. My parents never fully moved to that step, but I've seen it with, with many others. It could be it could be shunning. It could be um, ostracizing. Anyway, I'm ostracizing. ostracizing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. It could be ostracizing the right. other, you know, and then. What you do, and even be violent, you know. I mean, and I was about to say, and it can turn to violence because you begin to demonize the other, and so it's no longer someone who's different. Now they become bad, evil, dangerous, right? All because of how you choose to view. So then the next step, and we never got there. I'm so thankful, but the conditions are set for violence and even extermination, right? If it were you know, with the legal or social process allowed that. Well, I think it's it's really important that we do understand this because, I mean, we have to remember that this is the kind of thing that happened in Nazi Germany. And, right. and I think it's scary now because we have such polarization now in our own country. And I think yeah. that's really, really frightening. We're, you know, we're, we're ostracizing people. And, um, and I think we're seeing that, Right now, especially with the the immigrants, and yeah. it's a it's yeah. a very scary place because people are so polarized. If you look, you know, on on Facebook, even if you yeah. you'll see things about our president, and then you'll see things against the president, and then you'll see things about Republicans and Democrats and and gays and non gays and 
Oh yeah. my God, it's 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 terrifying for me. Um, yeah. I think yeah. it is too reminiscent of what you're talking about polarization. But I love that you have also you have um, eight steps for dealing with polarization yes. too. Can yeah. you go over those with us? I certainly can. The first one starts with recognizing and facing the fear. At the basis of all of this is fear, you know, and, and, and there's a difference between fear and danger. <laughs> you know, danger is something real and present, and you need to take precautions right. against danger, you know. But fear is this floating thing that they're bad and they're other, and it's often, it's usually focused on that which is not known, and you don't want to know it. Right. So facing the fear, number two, opening up channels of communication. This is literally what I had to do to begin to adjust to living in a world that I was not raised to live in. I had to open up the channels of communication and begin to reach out and learn how to talk to other people. I had to recognize, number three, that no matter how strongly my beliefs were, that I didn't know everything and that I had things to learn. So literally opening myself up to learning and then recognizing that the other person is not, the other other is not necessarily the enemy. People do destructive things, they act in harmful ways, but they are not in and of themselves the enemy. Think of a person on addiction in addiction yeah they can be very dangerous but they are they are dangerous because of what is in their life but they're still people is what i'm trying to get at understand the people the and what is going on in their lives and be open to realize their humanity yeah and um, we're just about out of time so just kind of okay. rush through the others i'm so sorry sure. okay. okay yes ma'am so number five, understand that other people, seeing other people's viewpoints doesn't mean that you have to, yours is negated, but it means that you've opened up your understanding. Number six, look for common grounds and ways to target bridges mm. rather than build walls. Right. Seven, learn the story of the other because when you understand another person's story, it humanizes them. And then finally, learn to recognize, appreciate, and embrace the humanity of the other even when it's a person that you deeply disagree with. Oh, I love that so much, Rachel. So that's a perfect way to end. And we have this wonderful book, Born Yesterday, The True Story of a Girl Born in the 20th Century but Raised in the 19th by Rachel Williams Smith. And that is also her website, rachelwilliamssmith.com. And we will just stay in touch and have you back again. Great, great work that you're doing out in the world. We sure appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye, sweetie. You've been listening. You take, take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org. On the web, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.